0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy related mistakes, misconceptions, conspiracies, and half truths. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 78 for the final third of June 2013. The topic I'm going to talk today is about historic and modern geocentrism, a topic that was requested by Donovan W. This is a fairly simple idea, and by disassembling the term, we can get to know what it actually is. Geo is Earth, centrism is center. So, we're going to be talking about an Earth-centered view of either the solar system or the universe, or various gradations in between. Now, I spoke during the last episode's Q&A about how, in science, we tend to start with the most simple model in order to explain something then we layer complexity on that simple model when that simple model breaks down. Only when the model cannot possibly be changed to accommodate new data do we usually head to a completely different one. Geocentrism is a pretty good example of this overall philosophy, although one that some people today still don't accept. More on that in a bit. Possibly the reason for geocentrism is that it was easy, and it fit with the basic observations of everyday experience. First off, as I sit here at my desk recording this episode, or writing this episode even, it doesn't feel as though I'm moving at all. It seems like I'm stationary. And yet, when I look outside, I can easily tell the sun has moved over the last two or three hours. Not that it took two or three hours to record the first two minutes of this podcast, but you get the point. At night, I can also clearly tell that the stars move over the course of an hour or so. These basic observations, that it doesn't seem as though I'm moving, but it does seem as though other stuff is moving, are apparent to anyone. And, in the absence of any other information, it will lead someone who's assuming the most simple explanation to think that it's Earth that's stationary and the rest of the universe that revolves around it. That was the thinking in the most ancient civilizations, such as the ancient Greeks by the 6th century BC, proposed by Anaximander. Two centuries later, both Plato and Aristotle also used the geocentric idea and also proposed that everything went around Earth on circles, or resided on perfect spheres. The philosophy of perfect circles and spheres, being perfect, and the heavens, being perfect as well, was very important and adopted by several religions in the era and shortly thereafter, most notably Christianity. Before I move on to the problems with this and how it eventually got supplanted, I think that it's important to also mention that the Greeks weren't stupid, and they actually did try to determine if Earth was moving through space. The thinking was that if Earth did move, then the stars should noticeably shift position relative to each other over the course of a year. This is the basic idea of parallax, which can be demonstrated by closing one eye, holding out your finger in front of a distant object, then opening both eyes and closing the other. The distant object should appear to move relative to your finger. That's parallax. Unfortunately, the stars were much farther away than the ancient Greeks thought ever possible. And since they couldn't detect any parallax in the stars, in fact, parallax wasn't discovered until the 1800s, then they had a choice. Faced with this choice of either the stars being much farther away than they thought, Or, Earth being the center of everything, they chose the latter. While Aristotle and Plato were influential, it was the Greco-Roman astronomer Claudius Ptolemaeus who developed the Ptolemaic system that was based on several previous civilization's observations that had been written down. His work was then adopted by European and Islamic astronomers in the Middle East and Upper Africa, and it's usually what's thought of when most people think of geocentrism. Now, I'm not going to go through his system in particular and how it works, because that's actually not that important to the narrative that I want to tell. Astronomy Cast has an excellent five-episode arc where parts two and three, episodes 184 and 185, go through the specifics if you're interested. I'll link to them and, of course, Wikipedia in the show notes for people who want more information. What is important to my story is that it was science as opposed to philosophy that ended up supplanting geocentrism. It was the observations of Tycho Brahe in the 1500s, the mathematical models of Johannes Kepler to fit those observations in the 1600s, the different observations and explanations of Galileo Galilei in the 1600s, and the theoretical backing in the late 1600s offered by Sir Isaac Newton that provided all of the evidence needed to show that geocentrism could not possibly explain what we see, but that a simple Basic, heliocentric model could explain them all easily, with the planets on ellipses and not circles. The only problem for heliocentrism was Mercury's orbit, but that would have to wait for Einstein in the early 1900s, and that's a story for a different podcast episode. As anyone who's familiar with this story knows, probably the biggest pushback against geocentrism was from the Catholic Church. It's not easy to change religious dogma, just look at attempts to get condoms officially allowed in the, the last half century. And this was the 1400s to 1600s, where in Europe the Church had an extraordinary amount of power, and a lot of this power came from the idea that they were infallible. If what they had been preaching about the very structure of the universe for a millennia was wrong, imagine what that could do to their power structure or at least that's how I imagine it in my head. I'm sure that it was more complicated than that, but at a very basic level, that's the gist of it. While the scientific community pretty much agreed by the late 1600s through 1700s that Earth orbited the Sun, the Catholic Church refused. It wasn't until 1820 that the Catholic astronomer Joseph Satelle possibly pronunciation, was allowed to treat Earth's motion as a fact, as opposed to Earth being stationary. It wasn't until two years later, 1822, that the Catholic Church stopped prohibiting publication of books that said Earth moved. Perhaps more famously, it wasn't until 1992 that the Pope finally apologized to the long-dead Galileo over the treatment that he had received. That's not to say the Catholics were the only jerks in this story. There's still a sect of Orthodox Jews that maintain geocentrism, and there are a few isolated sects of Islam who do as well. But most geocentrists today are relegated not to mosques, synagogues, and churches, but rather to the fringes of the internet, and they even sometimes throw conferences, like there was one about 3 years ago. For example, there is a very active website called Galileo was wrong at galileowaswrong.com that has a blog with articles posted nearly daily still today. Many of them are responses to various people trying to critique their arguments against geocentrism. There's even one about Phil Plate, and who knows, soon there may be one about this podcast episode. Modern geocentrists point to a couple different lines of evidence other than religious texts, and in isolation, at the very least, you could say that they could be interpreted either way, supporting geocentrism or supporting heliocentrism, or a non-Earth-centered universe because the sun isn't the center of the universe either. One of these experiments is the Michelson-Morley experiment, first conducted at my alma mater over a century ago. At the time, the 1880s, it was thought that there was a physical substance called ether, something that permeated the universe and was the medium through which light waves travel. Now, I said that very deliberately, light waves. When this experiment was done, light was considered to be a wave, and it was thought that it, as with all other waves, like sound waves, for example, they must travel through something. So they proposed this ether. When this experiment was done in 1887, for which both Michelson and Morley later won the Nobel Prize, it was known in the scientific community that we do live in a heliocentric solar system. Therefore, Earth moves. The idea behind the Michelson-Morley experiment is that if Earth is moving, it must also be moving relative to the ether. That meant that since the ether is carrying light, then light should move a little teensy-weensy little bit faster in one direction, the direction of motion relative to the ether, and just a little teensy-weensy bit slower in the other direction, or in any other direction. The Michelson-Morley experiment set out to show this. They did it by splitting a coherent beam of light, sending it in two different directions, and then bringing it back together. If there was any speed difference at all, as in we were traveling through an ether that carried light, then the light would not recombine quite right, and you'd see that when the split beams were brought back together. In other words, they would show a different pattern when brought back together if there was any sort of speed difference in the two split beams. But this is probably one of the most famous failed experiments in modern science. The conclusion was that there was no ether because there was no difference in the speed with which light traveled in either direction. Geocentrists, on the other hand, interpret it differently. There is an ether, but since Earth is stationary and everything moves around it, then you would expect a null result from the Michelson-Morley experiment. That's why I say that, in isolation, this experiment could be interpreted either way. It depends upon the framework. If you say that Earth is traveling around the Sun, then there can't be an ether from this experiment. But if you say that Earth is stationary, then there can still be an ether. Another way that geocentrists argue their case has to do with redshift. Back in the 1920s, Edwin Hubble observed that the majority of galaxies that were pretty far away were moving away from Earth, not towards us, no matter in what direction he looked. In other words, Everything was moving away from Earth. It looked like we were in a bad place to be. Galaxies that were farther away were moving faster. He interpreted this to be that the very fabric of the universe was expanding, and that it was carrying galaxies along for the ride. And it's not that we're in the center of this expansion, which is what geocentrists would say, but it's that in an expanding universe, no matter where you are, you would see the exact same thing going on everything is expanding away from everything else, except for stuff that's gravitationally bound. So in fairness, at the very least, I would say that this is neither evidence for nor against geocentrism, but rather just for an expanding universe, to try to be fair and to be objective. With that in mind, let's move on from evidence that they point to, to evidence that I think shows a heliocentric solar system and, more broadly, a non-special, non-Earth-centered universe. I'm going to talk about two different methods, one observational, one theoretical. First is the observational method, and it's something that I did over the course of several months back in 2008. It's to observe the planet Venus. If Venus goes in a circle around Earth, then it should always be the same size as seen from Earth. If the Sun also goes around Earth, and it's such that Venus is closer to Earth than the Sun, then Venus can only show a new phase through a crescent phase, and we can never see it as gibbous or full. If Venus and the Sun go around Earth but Venus is farther away, then we would only see a gibbous and full phase. We would never see a new phase or a crescent. To perhaps put it more simply, if the geocentric model is right, then Venus should never, ever, ever show all the phases that the Moon does. But if Venus orbits around the Sun, then we should see all the phases. When it's between Earth and the Sun, we would see the new phase. In other words, we can't see any of it because 100% of the lit side is facing the Sun away from us. When Venus is on the opposite side of the Sun as Earth, then we would see a full phase, except in the very rare case when it goes directly behind the Sun. When Galileo observed Venus over 400 years ago, in 1610 and 11, He saw that it did show phases. In fact, it showed all of the phases. But he also saw that Venus changed size, and he saw that the size correlated with the phases. Venus appeared over six times bigger just as it entered its new phase versus when it was in its full phase. It's not possible to explain this with an Earth-centered solar system. You must have, at the very least, Venus orbiting the Sun in order to explain this, which, of course, later adaptations of geocentric model do for Venus and Mercury. The reason is that Venus is closest to Earth when it's between Earth and the Sun, but it's way on the other side of the Sun, roughly six times farther away, when we see it fully lit. Because of the large difference in distance, you get the difference in size, and you get this difference in size correlated with the phase. This can't happen unless Venus goes around the Sun. And you can also use the change in size to estimate how far away Venus is relative to the Sun. Another method for showing that we live in a heliocentric solar system is the theory of gravity, although I guess in Louisiana and Texas, gravity, like evolution, is just a theory. Really though, once we figured out gravity, it was game over for geocentrism. Well, gravity and Kepler's laws. The basic idea of Newton's formulation of gravity is that all objects pull on all other objects, and that the amount of pull is proportional to their mass. Now, with Einstein, we think of it as warping space-time, but really you can think of it as Newton's pulling. It makes it easier in this case. For two free-standing, isolated objects in space, not under any other influence, they will come together under their own self-gravity and collide. For them not to collide, then they would have to be in orbit around a common center of mass. If the objects are the same mass, then the center of mass will be exactly between them, the halfway point, and they have to move in a direction perpendicular to the line between them through the center of mass. Think of uh, spinning bolas. Meanwhile, if one object is much more massive than the other, then the center of mass will be closer to the more massive object, and while both of them will still move around the center of mass, the less massive object has to move in a much larger orbit around that center, while the more massive object moves a lot less. With this in mind, all that remains is to apply it to the solar system. Gravity would hold that even if Earth were much, 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 much more massive than the Sun, Earth would still have to move a little bit. It wouldn't be immobile but since the sun in actuality is much more massive than earth then it's the sun that moves just a teeny tiny bit and it's earth that moves in orbit around it it's this basic theoretical idea that we can then apply to many other things such as say the galaxy the mass of all the stars near the center of the galaxy and the black hole at the center, is much more massive than Earth, or the sum of all of the mass in the solar system, so the Sun moves in orbit around the center of the galaxy. Our galaxy is one of around 30 in the local group, and all the galaxies in the local group move around a common center of mass, but not fast enough to remain in a stable orbit. That's why the Milky Way and Andromeda galaxies are going to collide in a few billion years. But to bring it back to the topic at hand, that's also why, again, Earth is in motion. As a poorly thought out way to summarize the issue, geocentrism is perhaps slightly less stupid than flat Earth beliefs, but it's kind of close. In isolation, their evidence at best, at least geocentrism today, their evidence at best today can be said to support either geocentrism or heliocentrism but it's other lines of evidence that put the weight squarely on the shoulders of Earth not being the center of the universe. There is no new news this episode, but there is a QA. and a The episode's question comes from Donovan W., who asks... Is there any reliable way to judge our absolute velocity in relation to the universe as a whole? The answer is both yes and no. Since there is no absolute reference frame and our current thinking of the shape of the universe is a hypertorus with no center and no edge, then a motion relative to quote-unquote the universe is kind of meaningless. What we can do is determine our motion relative to other objects. We know our motion on Earth's surface relative to the center as it spins. We can calculate that from basic geometry. We know our motion around the Sun, or at least we have for the last few hundred years. We know, to pretty good accuracy, our motion around the galaxy, as I discussed in a few episodes about why we weren't going to be in the center of the galaxy for 2012. This is done by lots and lots of very careful measurements of motions of stars that are nearby. By very careful measurements of Doppler shifts, we can also measure our speed towards or away from other galaxies. Measuring horizontal speed is much more difficult because objects are so far away and they don't move much on a human timescale, or the lifetime of a grant. We can also measure our velocity relative to the cosmic microwave background radiation, again based on Doppler shifts within it our entire local group of galaxies appear to be moving around 370 kilometers per second in a certain direction relative to the cosmic microwave background rest frame. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available. The easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. For feedback related to last episode's topic on the 2012 backpedaling. Some people have written to me to ask about the spelling of pedaling that I used, and whether I meant it as written, or if I had intended its homophone. P-E-D-A-L-I-N-G, as in bicycling backwards. To be perfectly honest, I did mean the latter, but both do work. My worst report card grade ever in school was fourth grade, third quarter in spelling. But as I said, both homophones work in this case. Peddling, P-E-D-D-L-I-N-G, works because these people peddle their ideas on unsuspecting and unquestioning audiences and radio hosts. Peddling, P-E-D-A-L-I-N-G, also works because it was about the backtracking or backpedaling that some of the 2012ers did after the fact, after the fact that nothing happened. But if you so choose, you can think of it instead as I inserted a very clever little play on words, and it was, of course, 100% intentional. For feedback general to the show, for those who don't use iTunes or who use some variant of display of podcast episodes, please note that episode 77 did come out on Monday, the 17th of June, but I backdated it to the 11th so some of you may have missed it because it may have been near the bottom of the page on your podcast list. Done with feedback for the moment, it's time for the puzzler, where each episode, I or I attempt each episode, to attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. There was no puzzler last episode, but there is for this episode. With the main segment on geocentrism, the puzzler deals with orbits. This puzzler comes from listener Jeff S., so blame him if you don't like it. All orbits are ellipses. Some are more elliptical than others, but there are no perfectly circular orbits. Why is that? Try to figure out the answer and send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss the answer during the next episode. And that episode will be about Richard Hoagland's fascination with the movie John Carter, and whether it was a leak by those in the know. So if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on it, please send it in. By way of announcements, if you're going to TAM, I'm planning another little get-together. Still, probably Saturday night, sometime during that three-hour dinner period, possibly in a suite in the hotel. If you're at all interested, please send me an email so that I can give you updates. Email address to which you should send is podcast at sjrdesign.com. Net. If it's just two or three people who are interested, then alternative arrangements may be arranged. Finally, don't forget that you can find me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net, on Facebook under Exposing Pseudo Astronomy, me personally on Twitter as Dr. That's Dr. Astro Stew, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudo PSEUDO Astro AST. R-O. That wraps up this rather short topic for the 78th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little or a lot at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or you can leave a comment in many, many different locations, such as the page for this episode on the website, on my blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can even tweet me, pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, and I'm starting to weed through my backlog of feedback. If you do have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell several random people or several non-random people. You may make a new friend or even friend me by doing so.